Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is our editor, Vivian Kelly. Hi, Tim. Our news editor, Paul Woolbank. Hello, Tim. And our senior media reporter, Zoe Samios. Hi, Tim. Plus, later we'll be speaking to digital veteran Ben Sharp about the awkward question of his two weeks running ADMA. I was very surprised about not only how quickly the news hit, but also the extent of the coverage. How Sharpie got on the wrong side of the law. Now, I've never had a letter from the police before, so I was actually quite excited. And we reminisce about the good old days of $120 CPMs. But first, the week's headlines. Why Today FM's breakfast shows keep imploding. The government's bonkers plan to tax digital advertising. The ad shell bidding war continues. And the royal wedding tops the TV ratings. So I guess before we get to the news this week, we should sort of catch up on one of the uh, the things that occupied a lot of uh, the Mumbrella team's brain space this week, which was the judging of the Mumbrella Awards, including visiting the media agencies, visiting the creative agencies, which took us around Sydney and Melbourne, uh, plus the big day of judging at Sydney Hilton. Uh, Vivian, after a hectic week, how did it make you feel about the industry? Oh, look, it was a really positive experience. You've got companies from all across Adland, whether they're brands, whether they're creative agencies, media agencies or media owners, all coming in and showcasing to us and our very esteemed judges just how fantastic they've been for the past 12 months. And it's uplifting to see how passionate they are about what they've achieved, how much they want to win the awards, and just how much effort they put into the presentations and how seriously they take the pretty probing questions from our judging panels. They do, yeah. Look, I I, I must admit, we, we end up writing about a lot of cock-ups and a lot of things that go wrong. So it's actually nice to have a reminder that there's a bunch of clever people doing good stuff for clients and actually helping them sell stuff week in and week out. And it's almost easy to forget that. Yeah, it is. Uh, We always get good reads and good conversations from when somebody does something wrong, whether it's as minor as a social media gaffe or as big as a strategic misstep. Uh, But it was fantastic to see the brands and the companies out there showing what they've done, how proud they are of it, and, and just seeing how much the industry has changed in the past 12 months. Well, we will find out the winners on June the 28th. So let's get into the news. Um, Viv, you've been spending a lot of time listening to Will Anderson podcast recently, uh, where we learned something I suppose we could count as new about what M. Rossiano thinks about her gig at Today FM. Well, I've always spent a lot of time listening to Will Anderson podcasts, so I guess that's not what's new. But what's new is how newsworthy they've become in light of M. Rossiano's comments. So she went on Will Anderson's Willosophy podcast, the basis of which is to be really honest and talk about your approach to life, work, family and everything uh, and, and she definitely took that and ran with it uh, and talked about the Today FM breakfast show's restructure and how that affected her. Like, Harley leaving was uh, hit me really hard. Um, and then, like, Ed and Grant were, like, they, they just got, they were put in the show. That was it. And and I got, all of a sudden got two co-hosts that I'd never really met or spoken to. 
and then I'm expected to have this instant chemistry with. So, look, it was really interesting to to listen to and, and just how honest she was about the ego blow that she suffered when it was renamed from the M. Rusciano radio show with Harley Breen to Today FM Breakfast and how much she struggles with the early mornings, the personalities and the politics that come into breakfast radio. Now, you love early mornings, don't you? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's Zoe laughing because she gets to see me every morning at 8 o'clock. No. no, no yeah, no. Zoe, look, you've, you, you, you've um, covered the ups and downs of the Today FM breakfast show over the years. I had an idea this week that we would stop referring to the presenters by their names and just give them all numbers so we don't get so attached to them. Um, but uh, talk us through some of their ups and downs. Well, look, I think that M. Rusciano, actually, Ed Cavley and Grant Denyer, her co-hosts, would be the, and I could be wrong here, but 13th and 14th um, joint breakfast show hosts. They've since had a re- Kyle and since Jackie. Kyle and Jackie O. So when Kyle and Jackie O on the show, um, and I'm actually crunching the cumulative audience numbers at the moment, and there was a sizable drop when they left. And what appears to have happened is there just has not been a recovery. Some of the shows have performed better than others. Um, the end of last year, I think the share had fallen down to about three, which is compared to other Sydney breakfast shows in Sydney, sizably lower. Whether or not M. Grant and Edda continued into next year, I'm not optimistic at this point. Whether they finish the end of this year, I'm not quite so optimistic. I presume she's contracted, so they'll have to pay her either way. And I guess that's the question is just how they'll they'll all get along now that these comments are in the open. And, of course, you know, it's weird because I feel like we're, we're, you know, it's hypocritical to not pretend we're part of the reporting. But one of the things that hasn't helped this week is the fact that those comments, those very honest comments that she made to Alenderson were then reported and spun more heavily by some rather than others. Whereas really she was just being honest. Not everyone loves the people they work with. Yeah, look, there's a certain sense of guilt that comes with reporting these things sometimes because I am actually uh, an M. Rusciano and a Will Anderson fan. So I was listening to that on the plane down to Melbourne knew it was a story and, and had this sort of inner turmoil because I knew that other outlets would pick up on it and call it a rant, which I don't class it as a rant. I think she was just fulfilling what the podcast needs. But it is newsworthy because it's such a high-profile breakfast spot that's been through so many famous radio people. And, you know, she did sort of come out swinging about the realities of working in that space, but everybody doesn't like certain people that they work with. Everybody has personality and political clashes, but she's a divisive character, so the the media was always going to run with that. And interestingly then this week, Jules Lund's podcast with Will Anderson was released. And, of course, he's a former breakfast radio host on Today FM as well. He was paired with Sophie Monk, Merrick Watts and former Spice Girl Mel B. Now, his podcast was actually recorded before Rusciano's, but he also said that going on these shows, you're just paired with people and, and it's a game of commercial radio and musical chairs. You think of all the radio shows that have just imploded, it's because they've been cast by an executive. Right. <laughs> if you watch Married at First Sight, like none of them were with their original partners. They all went on a TV show, got married to a complete stranger and now they've hooked up with other complete strangers from the show. So if they can't last nine weeks of a TV show, how do you imagine a radio partnership's going to last? Isn't that effectively what the radio industry here in Australia is. Like, literally, everyone just has radio shows and then they just split up and do musical chairs. It's a good point. You just partner swap around like, until you find one you Exactly. You like. 
So look, it's an ongoing problem for Today FM. I don't think either M or Jules meant to hit out at Southern Cross or Stereo, but it's just very unfortunate timing for them now that other media outlets are reporting their ongoing internal problems. And look, and it's just tricky for if you were a marketer at Southern Cross or Stereo and you're thinking, oh, I'm not sure how long this is going to last then you're going to market, you're going to spend your budget somewhere else. Can I just make a quick point that you were saying before, Viv, which, and I believe Jules was mentioning it as well, it's this chemistry thing. Interestingly, ARN's um, national content director, Duncan Campbell, talked a lot about that when he made some very big changes in Melbourne last year. His point was around you can't just put two people together because ultimately radio is a very intimate experience and you actually need some sort of chemistry to make the show work. Just like the chemistry we're all demonstrating. We are the next Hamish and Andy, it's true. <laughs> You've heard it here first. <laughs> and it's worth mentioning that we'll be chatting to uh, to Jules Land about his new gig with Tribe in a coming week right here on the Mumbrella cast. So next, to the government's big digital advertising tax. Paul, you've been covering this one this week. I certainly have. And the interesting thing that you said in the intro was that it's bonkers. And it absolutely was. So let's sum up what the idea is as we understand it. The idea at the moment is that it'll be a GST type uh, tax, similar to what the Europeans are proposing as well of 3 to 5% maybe. Yeah. But this is going to be on the digital platforms. And I should backtrack a little on that. Not just advertising, but things like Ubers, Airbnbs, all of these sort of things. So these foreign corporations, digital, don't employ many people in Australia comparatively, but um, have a lot of money coming in. And So is this a revenue grab? Is it to punish enemies of the traditional media who are in turn friends of the Turnbull government? What, 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 what seems to be motivating? I think there's a mix of that. So certainly for the media side of it, the Facebooks and the Googles, there certainly is an element of that. There are certain players in the media industry that uh, are gunning for them and you only have to pick up one of our broadsheets to see that on a daily basis. Now, within about 48 hours of us reporting it, or possibly even a bit less, the idea seemed to maybe be falling apart a bit when um, Pauline Hanson kind of signalled that she might be withdrawing her support for other parts of the tax bill. Do we think this will actually happen? It's going to go ahead with a proposal. So they're going to put a proposal out in a few weeks' time of this is what we're thinking of. But they preempted the whole thing and also they preempted the ACCC inquiry that's underway into these very digital platforms at the moment. So it really was an ill-advised thought bubble from the government. I look forward to covering this for many weeks to come. Now, it's all been happening in outdoor this week and everyone loves AdShell. Zoe? Well, I think to talk about Adshell, we need to take a few steps back. Um, For people who may not be as well informed in the outdoor advertising industry, there's actually something bigger at play here, which is the City of Sydney tender. The City of Sydney outdoor advertising tender is the biggest in Australia. It's been held by JC Deco for 20 years, so a lot's changed in 20 years. And it is imminent. So this is the right to stick up the ads on bus stops all around Sydney and charge the advertisers for it. Exactly. So bus shelters, toilets, phone booths, you name it. All my favourite places. All your favourite places. So that's in play at the moment. They're, They're currently, the City of Sydney is currently reviewing who they will put on that tender. And AdShell is actually the only other major player in market that's got this experience in street furniture. Apart from JC Deco. Apart from JC Deco, yes. So O-Media and AdShell, while massive players in this market, don't actually have the experience in 
furniture that the city of Sydney will require, which brings me to this week and what's sort of played out. So on Monday morning, O-Media revealed it had upped its ad shell bid to $470 million. It actually had uh, put forward a bid before. Now we know how much it was, but their offer was based on being able to go into a period of exclusive negotiations. Um, ad shell owner uh, HTE here, there and everywhere for those who don't know what HTE is, uh, said O-Media's offer was not the most attractive and that it undervalues AdShell. On Monday evening, we then found out that APN had emerged as one of the bidders, so APN Outdoor. Now, that's an interesting thing to happen because if we go back some time ago, I don't remember the exact date, Tim was before my time, maybe 2015, 14, APN Outdoor was actually owned by what was then called APN News and Media, which is now HTE. Um, so there is a history there. There's a history there between APN Outdoor and HTE, whether this benefits APN as a potential bidder. And James Warburton has made a, a massive point since he's come in to focus on mergers and acquisitions. It's a big part of his strategy. This doesn't come as a shock then. Um, and AdShell, with what it has to offer in the city of Sydney tender, it's it's a very valuable asset that APN Outdoor would probably want to have. So I suppose the thing I find myself asking and a, a, a reader asked in our comment thread is this fact that everyone suddenly seems to be bidding so hard for AdShell. Do we think this indicates that maybe AdShell have already won the tender and no one's been told yet? What it indicates to me is that there is something at play between JC Deco, O Media, APN Outdoor, and AdShell. Someone knows something we don't know, whether that be JC Deco's not on the tender and AdShell's the only one in, whether that be O Media and APN aren't on the tender at all and it's only AdShell and JC Deco. Whatever it is, something has happened behind the scenes that is prompting this bidding so aggressively. The tender has to be decided by, I think, October because they need to rip up everything in Sydney. That's part of the tender request. The old JC Deco stuff. The old JC Deco stuff. So they've asked not to just rent that out. They actually want a complete refurbish, which would imply that there's a lot of decisions being made at the moment. And the other twist is they want a partly a mobile solution, which they presumably do. means free Wi-Fi. Is that the thing? That's the idea as I understand it. So earlier this year, it might have been last year actually, JC Deco made a very big point to promote its partnership with Telstra. So you can imagine that in a city of Sydney tender, that will be what they're spruiking. And as we understand it, AdShell's wanting to partner with Optus. That's certainly what what the, I've not heard it officially, but that seems to be discussed. That's what we've been discussing, yes. So basically it's a two-part play. It's to do with Wi-Fi beacons. Obviously overseas, there's plenty of countries that have free Wi-Fi for the city. We don't have that here yet. Well, Adelaide we have it, don't we? Do we? Well, we don't have it in Sydney and I've never been to Adelaide. So there you go. Well, there you go. You need to get that right sooner rather than later because Adelaide is an excellent place for the record. So to the royal wedding, which has topped the ratings charts, filled the newspapers and overflowed the news feeds this week. So going around the team, starting with Paul, what was your favourite thing about the royal wedding? Uh, The fact that I was at the football. Zoe? When Megan and Harry left the building. And uh, Vivian, your favourite thing? Oh, look, somebody has to mention the preacher. And I also want to know what uh, jo- Josie, who's working the buttons this week, what her favourite thing about the royal wedding was. I think it was the gospel choir, which was very lovely. Well, there you go. So we all had our favourite things. Um, so, Zoe, there were some extraordinary ratings numbers involved. When you look at the Oztown results, there's some staggering numbers. The top 
if I'm looking at the sheet right now, the ceremony itself, 1.950 million across the five metro cities in Australia. That was just for Seven Network. If you look at Channel 9, it's 1.45 million. These numbers are absolutely huge. If I think back to the Australian Open Grand Finals, State of Origin, some of the biggest rating shows in Australia, even Ninja Warrior last year, to have numbers like this, to have a whole country or a lot of the country engaged is quite staggering. Particularly on a Saturday night, which is traditionally the lousiest night of, of the week for audiences. Um, so I must admit, I thought, okay, look, they're just going to, you know, the audience will be split across all of them. No one will get a great number and 10 will sneak up the middle with their, 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 their British ambulance service documentary. But, um, but that didn't, didn't quite unfold that way. Well, look, I have to sing the praises of Ambulance. I think it's a great show, but nothing was going to pull an audience up against Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. So maybe 10 just decided whatever they do, they knew they weren't going to win. So why not put on double episodes of Ambulance? Yeah. And look, it's worth it's worth also pointing out the game that all of the networks play to maximise how many shows they get into the top 20 by by splitting them into different parts. So, you know, at number one, for seven, the ceremony. Number two in the ratings week, Harry and Meghan arrivals. Number three for seven, Harry and Meghan procession. Then at nine, they yeah, naively, they didn't split the ratings in quite the same way. So um, nine just had the royal wedding, which averaged out at 1.475 metro for them. So would have been approaching two once you, you, you put in uh, regional viewing as well. Oh, then seven had the countdown at number five. I could go on, but like I... I would say that of the top 20, something like 12 or 13 of the shows for the week were royal wedding related. So, um, so yeah, look, the, the, the TV networks called it right. I think sending their crews over, the same with the radio networks who sent a lot of their talent over. Expensive exercise, but, um, but so it kind of worked, didn't it? I think so, yes. And I'd be really interested to see um, what the limited edition magazines and newspapers the sorts of sales and uplifting sales. I, I read something in the UK this week that saw a 20% uplift in the Daily Mirror. So there was definitely a proven effect. That was only early data, but I would be very interested to see how it actually affected the print editions as well. It was, it was very fortunate for us as well that it was perfectly timed for prime time here, even though it was on a Saturday night. And even more so because not only is Megan becoming a princess, she's quite prominent anyway from her acting roles on Suits. So I almost feel like this generated more excitement and intrigue than the previous royal wedding of William and Kate. Well, congratulations to the bride and groom and commiserations to Channel 10. Thanks, team. I'll let you get back to the news desk. Thanks, Thanks. Tim. Thanks, Tim. Joining us in the Mumbrella Car studio this week is Ben Sharp, who you may know as Sharpie. Now, Ben was Managing Director of AdRoll's Australian Operation until its dramatic restructure towards the end of last year. Prior to that, Ben was Chairman and Founding Member of the IAB Technology Council here in Australia, uh, has also been a Board Member and Investor in Conversant Media, and was co-founder of Allure Media, helping the publisher bring sites like Gizmodo and Business Insider to market all the way back in 2007. So something of a digital media and startup pioneer on the Australian scene. And uh, relatively recently, Sharpie was the newly appointed MD at the Association for Data-Driven Marketing and Advertising, or which you may know as ADMA. Um, now, um, 
I, I guess it was actually quite talked about your departure from Admiral. I know you, there's probably not much you can say, but were you surprised about the reaction to the news of your departure? Tim, I'll start off by saying thank you very much for having me today uh, and uh, love being involved with anything to do with Mumbrella. Um, as much as I would love to comment on my time with ADMA, and it was very short, um, I really can't comment on it other than to say that I was very surprised about not only how quickly the news hit, but also the extent of the coverage. Now, Viv, I don't know if we're going to get into crack if we keep trying. He sounds pretty firm on the no comment. That was that was a very firm and I must say very practised no comment there, Ben. You'd be uh, excellent in politics. <laughs> but how about the industry's reaction? Have people reached out to you? Were people surprised rather than just yourself if you can't talk about yourself can you talk about those around you uh there were there was definite surprise i think there was surprise in two ways one was um from people when i first accepted the job because my background is very entrepreneurial and uh have been involved in starting up businesses from scratch so uh, the comments that i received from a lot of people were very much along the lines of hey sharpie where's when's your next startup that you're getting involved with so um, and the startup world is something that I absolutely love doing and it's something that I've been involved with for a long time, both operationally and also as an investor and board member. So there was that reaction to start with, like, are you sure this is the right um, role for you? Um, and then second to that, there was always going to be an, a degree of shock when I um, when I left because it was so short. And, you know, ADMA is a very good industry association, um, broad reach, um, big membership base, um, and also is one that, uh, you know, is high profile. So I, I and that was, was what attracted you to it in the first place, presumably. It was, it was one of the, um, one of the reasons. So, you know, I think if you, you know, if you have a look at my, my background and everything that I've done, even when I started at Yahoo in 2001, Yahoo in 2001 was a very early stage dot com. And, uh, you know, people went in there, they lived the brand. There was a disruptive environment, uh, disruptive in a really positive way. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, my, my background is far better suited to um, fast moving, um, aggressive growth, disruptive, you know, create a, you know, a, a new market segment for, for a business. Do you think you've got another startup in you then? Um, Tim, I'm involved in a, a number of startups. Um, uh, now I get very passionate but sitting about sitting in that CEO chair, you know, living and breathing it all day. I mean, startup is, it's a bit hard to have a full life, isn't it? Outside of it. It, it is. Um, I, I get a, I get a buzz out of it in two ways. Um, I get a buzz out of the startup world, both in terms of mentoring people that want to work in startups. So I mentor and invest into uh, businesses that are start, you know, startups themselves. Um, but I also get a buzz out of people who want to work in startups because they're very creative. They're entrepreneurial. They want to push the boundaries um, and they want to challenge the status quo. So mm. it's been an interesting, you could say, 12 months for you with AdRoll scaling back its operations in Australia. You leave AdRoll, you go to ADMA you leave ADMA, where do you want to be sitting in a year? So imagine we're speaking, you know, in mid-2019, what position do you want to be in? And bear in mind what you say next may get played with some harp music in <laughs> in, in a year's time on the Mumbrella cast when we invite you in. This is where I need to be very careful about how I answer that question because um, as anyone would know that knows me, um, I throw myself a hundred percent into any role that I that I go into, and I've basically not had any failures. Oh, you know, over the past fifteen years. So, 
Um, I want to be careful about what that next role is going to be um, in terms of the opportunity, um, the business, the brand, the technology, the um, the, the market opportunity for, for that business. So 12 months from now, um, I will be in a very influential role, hopefully, um, delivering great value to marketers and people inside the ad and marketing technology ecosystem. Another political answer. We're not going to be able to trap him into anything. <laughs> I'm sorry, Zip. <laughs> The other reason that you've, uh, I, I guess, attracted some uh, uh, media coverage was um, uh, quite quite an interesting uh, story that you, you you told on LinkedIn and then got a bit of a life of its own as well, where um, where where you potentially found yourself on the wrong side of the law. Absolutely, um, I'll I'll tell the story um, for anyone that doesn't know it. So I had been using the BP Me app for. A couple of months. So um, an early adopter. I think I've always been an early adopter. Um, the BPME app I thought was fantastic. Um, didn't need to go into the service station and pay. You paid within your car, used the app, it charged directly to your credit card that you had um, logged in. And I thought this was a fantastic piece of technology and I thought quite innovative for BP, which is a very old, established um, and conservative business probably. So um, I thought this is great until... I went away on holidays, came back to a letter in the mail from the police. Now, I've never had a letter from the police before, so I was actually quite excited. I was thinking, what have I done? I'm going to get congratulated on my great driving. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's usually the opposite, isn't it? So not that that's happened all that often to me. Um, Opened the letter and it was, uh, you know, in summary, I had uh, driven off without paying for fuel, um, according to, to the letter. And... Uh, the letter said, you know, it was at this BP service station on this day. You'd apparently tried to use the BP Me app, but you didn't close the transaction out. So you better go back and pay and please get in contact with me, as in the police officer. Um, and I went, this is strange. Um, I'm a loyal registered customer of BP. Um, they knew that I had used the app or attempted to use the app. And I went, this is crazy. So I actually looked through the transaction history in the app and it had been paid. It had been paid two days later. Um, but when you are a user of this particular app, you don't close the transaction yourself. You open it up, you fill up with fuel, uh, you put the nozzle back in the, in the Bowser and, um, apparently you drive off. I thought that's what you were supposed to do. Um, wasn't so much the case because um, there was some fault with the process and the very next step that BP took was to report my number plate to the cops. See, this is the rather bizarre thing that when they know who you are, they know you're their customer. They turn to the police for debt collection rather than approaching you themselves. It's, it's uh, just it's strange brand behaviour. Un- unbelievable. And uh, if you read my post on LinkedIn, um, it was not a social media rant. It was actually to try and tie hey, this experience to poor use of customer data um, and customer experience, um, which is something that I think all brands need to think about, which is to, you know, if they know they've got a loyal customer um, and they've got registered um, signed up data about them, use that to deliver a great customer experience, no matter what the situation. So has BP lost you as a customer for life now? I did say at the end of that uh, post that yes, uh, BP, you've lost me as a customer. Now, I wrote this in. Um, I didn't re- actually realise it at the time, but it was in a in a way that actually encouraged a huge amount of interest in that particular post. This post on LinkedIn has had 
360-odd thousand views. It is massive. Which would be typical for your typical LinkedIn post? <laughs> no, the average would be below 1,000. Um, the, the highest piece of content next to this that I'd ever published had about 20-odd thousand views. So this was... What, why do you think it was? What was it that, that firstly kicked off in LinkedIn's algorithm, but secondly sort of caught people's imagination? Oh, listen, it's, um, I think it was almost like the right place at the right time. Uh, you know, if you think about how I published the, the post, you know, there was a degree of trying to capture people's attention. I said, I'm no criminal, and in brackets, got your attention. Um, so I think immediately people went, oh, this is interesting. Sharpie's actually writing something a bit different from what he typically does on, on LinkedIn. Um, then as people read the story, they suddenly went, oh, this is crazy. You mean the cops have been called on something that, you know, is completely irrelevant. So I think the audience suddenly started going, this is this is nuts. It's just really bad business practice. Um, the other reason why I think that the post took off was Aussies love an underdog, you know, and there was that element of David versus Goliath, you know, individual taking on a corporate, corporate back real, you know, kind of on the back foot and having to, to respond and – uh, you know, I think from that perspective, that was another another reason. And then the other reason is we all think we're getting gouged by the fuel companies. If you have a look at petrol prices from one week to the next, they fluctuate so wildly and no one understands why. So I think it just tapped into so many different people's um, unconscious or subconscious that uh, it raised awareness. And then, you know, I noticed um, initially from the comments and who was sharing the the content was there were a bunch of marketers that were sharing this as a case study. And I just assumed that people were probably saying inside their marketing departments, geez, I hope something similar doesn't happen to us. Let's make sure we continue to test every potential variable uh, of you know our use case of how we're interact- interacting with our customers. I followed up with two um, stories afterwards. One was to basically close the social media loop to say that, hey, BP, from a crisis management perspective, actually um, responded really well. I thought their... Um, their response immediately um, and the way in which they managed me as a, a dissatisfied customer was actually really, really positive. So what did I, they do? Um, they, so I published this at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I thought, you know, it's a dead time for social media, especially on LinkedIn. Obviously not the case. Um, by, I think the next day it had, had 50,000 views within, you know, 12 to 18 hours. So that was, that was pretty amazing. At that point, I'm going, this is hilarious. Um and then uh, someone from BP actually did get in contact with me via LinkedIn and said, hey, we've got a team working on this. Um, we would like to speak to you um, in the early part of this week. Can we get your direct contact details? And I said, absolutely. So um, gave my contact details. Someone on the Monday got in touch and said, hey, we will be able to respond to you by you know, tomorrow morning. And every time they committed to responding to me on something, they, they delivered against those deadlines. Uh, and then I spoke to uh, someone very senior inside the BP marketing team who um, gave a full explanation of why the situation had happened, um, the steps that they had put in place to avoid it from happening again, and gave me an opportunity to ask a, a bunch of questions. So I, I actually think that they handle it really well. I, I was really impressed. So have you come back as a customer? Uh, you know what? I, I have used the app again. Um because it's convenient um, is probably one reason. However, my usage pattern of it has changed because I would will probably look around for as cheap a fuel as possible, um, probably more so now than I had in the past. 
But the other thing that I now do is when if I've filled up and I've used the app, I actually go into the shop and I'm like, mate, I've, I'm, I've paid by the app. Is that okay? So it almost defeats the purpose of using it, but I don't want to go to, I don't want to be reported to the cops again. So yeah. have they really won you back or are you just using it again because of that classic human quality of it's too much effort to change St- my behaviour? Stockholm syndrome. Well, yeah. I mean, I had an incident in 2009 in New York where the Commonwealth Bank totally, totally screwed me over and, and wouldn't help me. And while I was there with no cash, no cards and, and no assistance, I swore that as soon as I returned to Australia, I would close my Commonwealth Bank account. Did you? Nine years later, I'm still with the Commonwealth Bank because by the time I got home, the anger was gone and that fear of actually having to go through the process and change the bank account that I'd had since 1993 was all too hard. Yep. It sounds I guess you'd a- memorise the account number. Well, I have and I don't want to learn another one. Do, do you want to know how difficult it is to not fill up at a BP? Very. They are everywhere. And BP and Caltex, who are, you know, is the other dominant um, player, uh, I think BP owns the, um, br- uh, owns the Caltex brand. So if you exclude those two brands from how you fill up with fuel – it leaves you a very small proportion. Of- Can you just pretend to yourself that you don't know that Caltex is part of the same family? <laughs> um, kind of, kind of. Now, now, have BP lost me as a as a customer? Um, oh, listen, I, I think twice now about uh, trying to use another, you know, service station. Um, let's jump back to uh, to your, your 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 very interesting career. Um, something that strikes me that um, is, is is really interesting is your is your media stints with both Conversant and Allure, both still that relatively rare thing of a digital media publishing startup, um, both of which have had a degree of success. Tim, you'd know a lot about um, digital media publishing startups. Yes, I guess I kept yeah. myself as, 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 as certainly being one within a niche. Yep. Um, do you think that the market has changed to the extent that we won't see another one now, though? Uh, I, th- I think it would. it's very, very difficult now to launch a new publishing business. Um, to give you an idea, when we launched um, Allure Media in 2006, 2007, there were very, very few niche publishers of specific content. Uh, there was no one else in the country at the time that was really um, publishing a technology-specific site. Um, CNET were, were here, but they had a very small um, reach and audience and, and presence at the time. So, um, you know, we, we were, in effect, almost first to market we're, with that first mover advantage. But the other benefit that we had um, at the time was it preceded programmatic buying. Um, it also preceded any real innovative ad formats and it preceded um, any native content. Yeah, so, so was it almost because, of course, a lot of them were US brands where you were effectively monetizing the Australian traffic. Um, was it in a way, was it almost more like a sort of sales sales house type role, for instance? No, no not at all. So the, the, the concept behind um, Allure when we launched it was to strike long-term license agreements with international publishers, um, take some of their content and their brand and rebuild and republish um, some of their international content, 
but then supplement it with locally written content by a local editorial team. So locally, Alua was a um, a local meter asset that we owned and published ourselves. It allowed us at the time to create not only a disruptive um, editorial format um, and a way of encouraging our journalists to write not only quality content, but also quantity of content. So we incentivized journos to, to write a lot, um, but we also created uh, ad formats that had never been um, pushed out into you know into market before. We, we we changed the market to a degree, and I like to think that we were the first people in Australia to do native advertising. But native advertising at the time, the first couple of um, ways in which we did that was republishing a press release. <laughs> and, <it> was, <laughs> and which uh, which brands got the most momentum? Um, as in which brands inside which, which of Allure. your media brands? Um, Gizmodo was yep. the standout. Um, we actually launched with Gizmodo and Defamer. Um, I don't know if you remember I do Defamer. Remember Defamer, yes. yeah. So celebrity a, gossip. It feels a little like you're tempting the the libel gods, doesn't it? When you call your site Defamer. Well, that was the concept behind it, and um, uh, you know, I think. You know, think about Defamer, you know, the, the content on Defamer that actually struck the highest um, audience or the highest reach was, I don't know if you remember, uh, there was a kid called Corey that had the big so Facebook party in the Melbourne suburbs. I want to say Corey Worthington. He's now facing not only the wrath of mum and dad, but a $20,000 fine from police. That was the first bit of content that we published that suddenly went crazy. Take, your, take a few glasses and apologise to us. I'll say sorry, but I'm not taking on my glasses. So it was that type of content that um, we published on Defamer. But then when, uh, you know, when Gorka Media um, closed down Defamer, we we closed the local yes. um, local version of it as well. So Gizmodo was always our marquee site. Um, and then we started launching other um, other Gorka Media sites. Um, Kotaku and Lifehacker were, were two others. And did you ever weigh up launching a local version of Gorka? Uh, not really, because we actually didn't see the advertiser appeal um, for Gorka itself. It was probably a good decision, um, looking, uh, looking back in hindsight yes, now. Yes, for those who don't have the context, Gorka was started by a guy called Nick Denton, Nick wasn't Nick Denton, it? yeah, that's right. And was eventually sued for libel by Hulk Hogan yes. over um, the – or possibly it was invasion of privacy for um, for broadcasting a, a, a clip from a, a sex tape and all the time this legal action was being um, uh, funded by a, uh, a, a dot-com billionaire who yes. wanted the site closed and eventually succeeded. Yeah, that's uh, that's right. So I think in hindsight we did a uh, we made the right decision not to launch Gorka for a couple of reasons. One is we didn't think it had advertiser appeal. It probably had some consumer appeal, but we thought it was too risky from a brand uh, safety perspective. There were other sites within the Gorka media portfolio that were far more interesting. Kotaku gaming site, Lifehacker, which was um, you know another technology driven site, but um, all about how to hack your life to do things better using technology. So it had both consumer and business appeal. And Ben, you mentioned that you don't think people would be able to launch a similar business in 2018. Do you think that we're going to see publishers scaling back their operations? So rather than just stagnating, do you think they're going to drop off a bit? Um, The reason why I think there will be far fewer publishers that launch now as, as opposed to what we saw 10 to, you know, 15 years ago was that when we launched, um, when we launched Allure Media, we were getting ad yields of uh, 80 to 120 bucks as a CPM on standard ad format. So think about the yields that you get for standard ads now. Maybe what, $1, $5? Oh, listen, I think you probably get a little bit more than that, but it's very difficult to sell 
um, you know, standard banner ads for any more than what, 15, 20 bucks. Um, I'd be really interested to see what, you know, someone like Fairfax get on the front page of SMH now, but it wouldn't be anywhere near what uh, they probably were receiving um, ten, 10 years ago. But if you're a, if you're a small niche publisher, you need significant scale to be able to um, build a successful business when the ad yield is, you know, an eighth of what we might have been seeing, um, you know, 10 years ago. And which publishers, when you look around now, do you do you actually admire the job they're doing? Uh, well, I have to say Conversant Media because I think they've done, uh, you know, a fantastic job over 10 years um, in building brands from scratch, niche environments. Um, I really like what Zach did with... Uh, with conversant media in the you know in the early days and that extended both in terms of rich editorial from um, journos that they um, recruited themselves the fans uh, you know the, the community submitted high quality content which was published as um, you know a, a form of editorial as and part then the, of the raw as part of the raw yeah absolutely and uh, then there was a really strong social network on top of that as well so or surrounding it so you had these three um, you know, intersecting forms of content. And will they thrive within HTE, their new owner? I think? certainly hope so. I think, you know, for anyone that's been involved in an early stage business, um, whether, you know, after you exit through whatever, you know, whatever means, whether it's through sale or, or, or anything else, you certainly hope to see that brand continue. And, um, I, listen, I, I hope they, I hope they do. You know, HCN have some awesome assets, and I certainly hope that uh, there's a way for them to leverage, you know, conversant assets as part of the rest of the HTN portfolio. And who else? Which other media? Which other media players do you see doing interesting things? Uh, it's it's probably difficult. To, yeah, th- this is actually an interesting conversation, right? Because when I, you know my media browsing habits. Um, and, you know, I'm probably at the forefront of thinking, you know, what are interesting publishing environments to, to look at? God, I, I spend so much time in Facebook and social media environments, which is the real problem for, uh, you know, for anyone creating niche content, because where do you go to first? Ten years ago, if you wanted to read about technology, you went to Gizmodo or CNET. Um, if you wanted to read about, you know, news, you would go to Fairf- a Fairfax or news site. Um, if you wanted to read about celebrity, you would go to Pop Sugar, which was another Allure media site. Now, how, what does a consumer do when they are looking for content? They go to Facebook, um, you know, or they're actually getting pushed, you know, specific content on on Instagram or something like that. So I think it's a, it's a real challenge for, um, for for niche publishers to create a significant presence without, you know, the the impact of uh, you know what social media is is doing for them. Would you ever go into publishing again? Um, Possibly, like, I, I love publishing environments, right? Because I, I love you know niche content speaks to a particular audience. Um, uh, yeah, listen, I, it's it, it's a really interesting environment. Are you trying to recruit Ben for his next gig, Tim? Well, you know, I always like to talent spot when I can. <laughs> is that what the podcast is for? <laughs> Secret <laughs> <is>. job interview. <laughs> Congratulations, Sharpa, you've passed. Okay. <laughs> thank thanks, you. Thanks very much for joining us. No worries. Thank you. Thank you very much to Sharpie for coming into the Mumbrellacast studio. Now, as we mentioned during our conversation, Ben wrote a piece about his experience with brief LinkedIn fame, and we'll link to that in today's episode description. But that wraps things up for this week. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next week. Toodle pen.